0: This is HEC Media.
1: Welcome to Talking with Authors, a program dedicated to speaking with some of the best-selling authors around, covering many different genres. I'm your podcast host, Rod Milam, for HEC Media. With the help of independent bookstore Left Bank Books and the St. Louis County Library, we are able to sit down with amazing writers and thought leaders to discuss their work, their inspiration, and what makes them special. By the way, you can also watch video versions of most of these interviews by going to atcmedia.org. Today, our author is independent film and television producer and writer Mara Gad. We spoke with her as she was on tour in November of 2019 with her book, The Color of Love, a story of a mixed-race Jewish girl by Gate Publishing. Mar Gad was born as the product of a relationship between an unwed black father and white Jewish mother in Chicago, Illinois, and was adopted into an all-white Jewish family in 1970 at three days old. As an obviously mixed-race child of the time, she grew up standing out in the close-knit Jewish community and synagogue of her adopted parents and in the city of Chicago in general. But her parents were firmly behind her and against all people that couldn't understand that she was who she was. But the strain from too much attention was always with her.
2: I grew up with this sense of people are always talking about us, it's always because of me. And I can't say it was guilt, that wasn't the feeling. And God knows my parents went out of their way to make sure that I knew I was beautiful and amazing and their daughter and that was all that mattered. And my mom will still say she never wished that I was different. She often has wished the world was different, but never me.
1: And with that explicit backing, she found a way to always seek paths of connection to those that were racist and hurtful to her, even those in her own family that she was once close with when they were willing and able to receive her love. We'll take a deep dive into the unique life of producer and author Mara Gad, our guest on this edition of Talking with Authors from HEC Media and HEC Books. Here's our host and interviewer this time, Brenda Madden. Mara
2: Gad,
0: thank you so much for joining us. Thank
2: you for having me.
0: So the book is The Color of Love. It must be crazy to think like your story is going to be in stores.
2: (laughs) It is a little overwhelming. Like even though the book has been done for a long time and I've known that this is coming for a long time, now my friends have been sending me pictures as they get theirs in the mail. And every time I get one, I think, oh my god, my book is out in the world. Um, So it's really thrilling and And, slightly overwhelming. (laughs) because you're yeah. a first-time author. Yes. So you had no idea what to expect. right? Really. And I still, I, there are still times when I have no idea what to expect, but yes. You called your memoir The Color of Love. Yes. Was that always the title? It wasn't. Um, the original title, when we went back and did the proposal a couple of years ago, was called the Yerusha. Um, Yerusha is the Yiddish word for inheritance, and we had built the the pitch around talking about what I had inherited from my relationship with my great aunt that gets chronicled in the second half of the book. But when we finished, it didn't work. It wasn't accessible to people. Nobody knew what it meant. Um, And this felt more central to the story. It's central to who I am. um, And hopefully something that people will connect to even when they just look at it on a shelf and think, ooh, I'll buy that one. Um, So we went with that. And the central
0: word, of course, is love. That's what really ties everything together in your story, and yes. it's where your story begins, really, as as you say in your memoir. It was love at first sight yes. between you and your parents.
2: Yes, um, my parents had been unable to conceive. They, you know, they were newlyweds, and they went through what limited fertility testing there was back in the late 1960s. And my mom said that the doctor, you know, suggested using artificial insemination. And said that the baby would be half theirs if they did that. And, and she saw my father just deflate. And she just said, you know what? We're going to adopt and find one and make the baby all ours. Um, and over on the other side of the country in New York, there was a young, unmarried Jewish girl who was pregnant. Um, she had had an affair with a black man that she did not tell anybody about because back in those days, that was pretty common. Um, she went to her rabbi and said, I cannot keep this baby. You have to help me. And the match was made. Um, You know, back in the late 1960s and early 70s, adoption really was this quiet thing. And lawyers and and family members sometimes and certainly rabbis would help help to do this. Um, But nobody knew that I was going to come out the color of milk chocolate. And so when my parents got the call that I'd been born, they flew to New York to pick me up. And I say in the book, the lawyer who was handling things leaned over and he looked into the crib and all of the color drained out of his face. And he said to the nurse, are you sure that's the baby? And the nurse said, that's the baby. And the rabbi called my parents and said, you don't have to keep her. We didn't know that she was going to come out brown and you didn't sign up for that. And my parents said, what are you talking about? That's our baby and we are taking her home. And that was it. That is, I mean, if that isn't the definition of unconditional love, I don't know what is. And they didn't think about it, and they didn't question it. To them, it wasn't, they weren't taking home a biracial baby. They were taking home their daughter. Um, and, and they were so, overjoyed. Right? Yes, mm-hmm. they were. And, and so I, from the moment I, I took my first breath, I was insanely loved. And, um, and I am grateful for that every minute of every day. You
0: mentioned that for your parents, uh, it was never fight or flight, it was always fight. Yes. And there was, unfortunately,
2: a fight. Constantly. Yeah, I mean, again, back in 1970, adoption was often very secret. People would look for kids that would look like them. And here my parents brought a biracial baby into a very white neighborhood. Um, And there are misconceptions about what Jews look like, there are misconceptions about black people being Jewish. And so it set off a firestorm in the neighborhood, in our family, at our synagogue. Everybody had some—strangers on the street would stop my mother if she was pushing me out in the stroller. And they would look at, look at me and say, well, is she yours? And my mother would get snippy and say, no, she's the milkman's kid. you know. People just felt free to comment because I was different. Um, and it was it was very challenging. I don't think anybody really understood what was going to happen.
0: And beyond even, as you said, the normal racial factor, you were in a very close-knit,
2: homogenous community, yeah. too. Yeah. And Chicago's a very segregated city. You know, it still is in a lot of ways. Um, and, and especially so,
0: so right in 1970.
2: Yeah. And so very close-knit community. Um, Our synagogue was almost, not almost, it was entirely Ashkenazi, so all Eastern European Jews, and one brown little girl. Um, And people had things to say. There was a rumor at my synagogue when I was young that my mother had been raped by a black man, but they decided to keep the baby anyway, and that's why I look this way. And people would feel like they could say that with an earshot of me. And I had to go home at, like, seven years old and ask what rape was because that was the origin story that, that, cre- that, that they created, that that would be the only reason why I could look this way.
0: Like they were doing you a favor by giving you some well, story. of... they had of to
2: make up a story, right? Right, an excuse or there something. There had to right. be a story. It isn't to say that everybody was terrible. I don't like to make sweeping generalizations about anyone or groups of people. Um, our rabbi, um, Herman Schalman of much beloved memory... He used to say, you know what, she's mine. And if you have a problem, you can come to me. Um, but it was, it was very hard, you know?
0: Do you remember the moment when you first became aware? Was it, was it that type of incident or was it even younger when you became aware of the, of, of the otherness as you have, have termed it?
2: I, I remember the day that somebody told me that I didn't look like my family. Like my parents, I grew up understanding that I'd been adopted And we had storybooks and all kinds of things to help frame that. But I did not have any understanding that I didn't look like my family. Um, And there was a a girl that I was friends with. And we were playing one day. And I I was around that same age, six or seven. And she said, you know, my parents said that your real mother didn't love you. And so she gave you away. And that's why you live with this family. And you don't look like your parents. And... It was like my whole world exploded because the story that I knew about adoption is that adoption is an act of love. And here she made it sound like somebody didn't want me and and like left me to be taken by, you know. But when she said, you don't look like your family, I thought, well, what do you mean I don't look like my family? And I ran home in tears and my mother had to explain that, no, I don't look exactly like them. And she had to try I, I can't remember what she said I know I felt okay when it was all over but I do remember the first time somebody said to my face and it was a child who said it it was a child because her parents had taught her that you know um, and I'm always struck by that moment because there were adults saying all kinds of things but for a child to, to bring me that was uh, I think that there's, there's a lot to look at in that
0: You've talked, too, about how your mom was so strong, both your parents and your grandmother, so strong through the evolution of this as you grew up. Yes. Have you ever talked about how hard it was, that feeling as a parent, of thinking, oh, when's the next oh, my mother's still. attack going to come? That had to have been an awful feeling for your child.
2: We, My, my father passed away when I was 19. Um, and my father and I never had that conversation because really... I saw it in him every day. He really, and I probably will get weepy. I apologize. Um, Just the thought of it. He really, truly wanted to protect me in every way that he could. And I watched him do it so we didn't have to talk about it. Um, My mom and I still talk about it. I I recently had an incident where um, something happened when I was on the road. And my mother at 75 years old was like, do you need me to come? Do you want me to come? I will come. My mother will always, always, until she draws her last breath, be
0: my greatest defender. Gosh, a warrior, wow. Yeah. Yeah, Yeah, I'm sure the internalization of that wears on you.
2: I mean, I I grew up with this sense of people are always talking about us. It's always because of me, Um, and I can't say it was guilt. That wasn't the feeling. And God knows my parents went out of their way to make sure that I knew I was beautiful and amazing and their daughter and that was all that mattered. And my mom will still say, she never wished that I was different. She often has wished the world was different, but never me. And she never, there was never a regret for her and she never, there's nothing that she needed to be different. This, this is simply our family's path.
0: Your family and you, you carry the story together privately for so many years, what caused you to finally decide
2: to share it with the world? Um, I do think that culturally we are finally talking about things in a way that we have not in many, many, many decades, if ever. Um, And I also, I think that I was silent for so many years because I did want to fit in. And I... I wanted people to like me and accept me, and nobody wanted to talk about it. You could see this palpable discomfort, and so I figured if I don't talk about it, maybe maybe like my bubby would say, they won't know I'm <laughs> different from everyone else. That's right. Else. You
0: mentioned that, that your, yeah. that your bubby just ha- had a unique way or <laughs> my bubby,
2: my method bubby. for dealing with it. Yeah, yeah, she was funny. She used to say, oh, why do you tell people you're adopted if you don't <laughs> tell people they won't know? And I was like, Bubby, it's just that simple. They (laughs) know. I was like, look at us. They know. But I think on some level I was quiet too because I didn't, nobody wanted to talk about it and I knew that. And I didn't want people to be more uncomfortable. You know, sometimes I didn't talk about it because it was a safety issue. If a racist is coming for you and and there, you feel that notion of being unsafe, of being physically unsafe. You close your mouth. You pray that you get through it and you keep it moving. And that has served me well on more than one occasion. I've had people put their hands on me. And out of fear and self-preservation, I've kept my mouth shut. But I, I can't anymore. I can't. I don't want to be quiet anymore. It is not right that at 50 years old, I still rarely can walk into a synagogue or a Jewish building without somebody wondering if I'm someone's nanny or caregiver or the kitchen help or there to help with the band, which was a question I got on Rosh Hashanah morning this year in LA. Um, It is not right that I am still told routinely that I wasn't made the right way. I, I um, I was talking with A a black man who came to one of my book events and he looked at me and he said you're that black Jewish girl aren't you and I said I am and he said I hope someday you do find Jesus because there is this misconception that black people are Christian or Muslim but not Jewish I'm tired I'm tired of being quiet and I'm tired of people telling me that the way I was made isn't right there's nothing wrong with the way that I was made, and that
0: f- sense that you've experienced that you weren't, you were never enough of a- anything. Yes, or that I should choose not black enough, not Jewish not black enough, enough not, not I'm certainly
2: not white enough, right? Like <laughs> I'm not white, um, but th- there's also this pressure that you should choose to be something, that you can't be both, that I can't be everything, that I can't just be everything and have that be beautiful. Um, I am I am human. I'm fully beautifully human. And if that isn't enough for people, then they are not my people, you know?
0: How did it come about that you finally decided to take the leap and say, I'm going to put this story out there? Had it been brewing in you for a while or was no. something that's sort of like. <laughs> that's the funny thing. No. Because you work in storytelling. You're, you're, right, I do. you're a producer. and you I, Right. So you're
2: visualizing other people's stories all the time. Uh, yes. But. I bring other people's stories to life. And never I never thought about writing a book. But like I said, people were asking me for my life rights. And so my friends in the industry very quietly were like, Mara why don't you just write a book, and then there will be source ma- I mean, it was all kind of slightly business-driven at first. There'll be source material, and then nobody can tell you what your story is or is not. Take ownership of yeah. it. Yeah, and mm. so I said, okay, I'll write a book. And it was, and, and it was like everything opened up. <sighs> I made what I now am coming to understand some people think is a brave choice, but it just, it was the right time. It was the right time, and I do think that in a world that is growing increasingly more diverse and beautifully more diverse, I never saw anyone who looked like me as a kid, who looked like me, who sounded like me. If I can be that for someone else, what a gift that is. What an incredible gift that is to be able to to say to young people, you know, The way you are made is beautiful and perfect just as you are. Don't let anybody tell you otherwise. Um, I feel uniquely qualified to say that.
1: Coming up in a moment, we'll find out what one of the main motivations was for Mara Gad to compile her memoir.
2: This book is my way of saying this is the truth. This is what it feels like when you look at someone who you think doesn't belong where you are, or say something to a stranger that is wildly inappropriate. This is what that does to
1: people. She'll also take us along in her journey to how she was able to accept her own unique self, and she'll do a reading from her book, The Color of Love, When Talking with Authors continues from HEC Media.
0: Educate Today offers an ever-growing library of the highest quality video resources, curriculum materials, and interactive programs. All of which are designed to challenge thinking, inspire creativity, and empower learning of students, educators, parents, and lifelong learners. And you can find out more about all these programs by going online to educate.today. That's educate.today. One of the other central parts of the story, or rather, sort of the tent pole that, that this is sort of built around, too, is your experience with, with your aunt. Is it yeah. Nettie or Ned? Nettie. Nettie. Okay, yes. I, w- I wasn't sure throughout. Another unusual Nettie.
2: spelling. Right, for
0: correct in my <laughs> head if I was right. Yeah. Uh, that's sort of the tentpole in a way for your larger story. Yes. Is this experience of this aunt that you wanted nothing more than for her to love you. Yes. And she withheld that. Oh, yes. And that is, so, so this is a lifetime story, right, that just kind of came to.
2: It, you know, when you're, when you're a kid. Right? You have some relatives that you're really drawn to and others maybe not so much. And I was so drawn to her. Um, and all I wanted was for this like well-traveled, w- seemingly glamorous aunt that, that sort of came into our lives when I was about 10. And she was your mom's... My mom's aunt. Favorite so, aunt too, yes. right? At the
0: time they had a real special...
2: Yes, she yeah. had been... Um, she was my mother's brother's sister... Um, My mother's father was an abusive, abusive man to everyone, to his sister, to his wife, to my mother. And so my mother, you know, when she was in college, went and lived with Nettie to get away from the house. Um, Nettie was my mother's favorite aunt. And in many ways, you know, sort of like a a third parent to her. And so for this woman to... remember your first meeting...
0: Or the first time you became cognizant, you were cognizant. I mean, you would have known her your whole life. But do you remember that the first time that you realized she was not going to be that special
2: person? Well, it was funny. We didn't know her our whole lives. She did not come into oh, our lives true. until I was about 10. That's true. She left. She was she because was, of the she had difficulty.
0: a Chinese husband, <laughs> right? That's true. <laughs> she had a Chinese husband. She had a
2: colorful, right? Too. And she was she was afraid of what her brother would say. So you had
0: heard of her, but
2: yeah, also there was the lore, legend, but there was but there was oh, no meeting right. until I was about 10. now. That's
0: coming back to me from the story, right? And
2: when I met her, I remember thinking, "Oh my God, this woman is sparkly and amazing," and I totally want to connect to this woman. And even at that first visit, she made it clear that my sister could sort of touch her jewelry and her things. But when I wanted to, she said she was tired, and it was time for everybody to let her take a nap. And only in retrospect do you see those tiny moments add up to what became an explosive moment at my sister's wedding. Um, she was Racism is an abuse, right? It is an abuse of the soul. And clever abusers don't leave bruises where people will see them, because they don't want to be seen as, as an abuser. Nettie was a very clever racist. She never hit when my parents were around. She always struck when we were alone. And so she was conscious of her image. Sure. She Mm -hmm. didn't want to seem less in the eyes of my mother or certainly my Bobby. They were best friends from childhood. And so it was only when we were alone and it was those little digging horrible comments. You know, I was never allowed to touch her. I couldn't play with her jewelry like my sister could. Just stay away from me. I'm tired. You know, now's not a good time. Um, and it sounds like the kind of thing where you kept thinking, "Is it me?" I, I did wonder if it was me, right. but that sort of sinister way of making it feel like you're like I had done the something. Yeah. I didn't know what to do with it. I didn't know what to say. I didn't, you know, it, it was a very strange dynamic. Um, but it all came to a head at my sister's wedding. She'd had a bit too much to drink, and she, you know, she looked me up and down right before my sister was going to walk down the aisle. And she said, you know, you're very lucky we ever let you in the family. I mean, me having a Chinese husband is one thing, but nothing is worse than black. And she said it in front of everyone. On this beautiful day. This On this should have beautiful been. day, she just, there it was. And it was like a bomb went off. You know, everybody, st- thank God my sister and brother-in-law were not in the room. They were getting, you know, mentally prepared to walk down the aisle. But there it was. And once that happened that was it. She, like everybody else, had to go the other way. But she was the one that I wanted to connect to. And I I tried to because it was never as clear as it was on that day what her problem was.
0: What does that do to a person to have to be the target of that? I mean, the bullet that came at you and you had to stand there and I mean, what does that do to you? Um, In that moment, I just feel like, oh,
2: I mean... I can't say it was the first time. Yeah. It was arguably one of the worst times just because when something like that happens, what I always wanted to do was to shrink inside of myself or leave. That wasn't an option. That was not an option that day. I was supposed to sing. My sister was walking down the aisle. There was a family celebration, and leaving was not an option. And and so... I had to take like five minutes, gather myself, swallow it down, get through the day, and then you have to let the pain out later, you know? Does Uh, it
0: kind of, does it just take a piece out of you each time? Do you get to the point where... I don't let it anymore.
2: How do you? I don't therapy. I've I've been in therapy for no. I'm serious. I've no, been I in, believe it. Yeah, I've been in therapy. I don't for know
0: how you, someone right could you could survive it. It's abuse. So, it is abuse. Yeah, and
2: and I I have been in therapy for 25 years. Um, I believe that it is the reason why I am still alive. Um, because otherwise, it does. It is a poison that people feed you, and eventually you keep ingesting. You know, my silence was was me continuing to ingest poison, right? And so, um, yeah, I think if you don't find a way to acknowledge the pain, to acknowledge um, the anger, you know, like think about how many people live in this constant state of anger. That, too, eats you alive. And so I I made a choice that I didn't want to live that way. I can't live that way. I don't believe we're supposed to live in a state of anger and pain constantly. I believe love is why we are here. We are here to love and to be loved. And if that isn't the constant experience you're having, I needed some help to figure out how to manage it. And some days I still do. But I do not let people take anything from me anymore. For you to tell this story, was that part of that? Absolutely. Absolutely it was my way of no longer being afraid of making people uncomfortable with the things that I have to say or with the reality of my life. So many people meet me and think nothing bad has ever happened to me. When I was still working in musical theater I auditioned way back in the day for the touring company of Rent and I got called back and called back and called back and called back and the director finally pulled me aside he said here's the problem I have. He said look at you you don't look like you know what it is to have suffered for one minute, much, lef- much less lived on the street. He said, I don't know what to do with that. And I said, it's called acting. You have no idea what I've been through. And he said, but you don't carry it. I look at you and all I see is light and joy and love. And I thought, wow, I must be a much better actress than I thought I was because I was carrying all of that with me you know? So, um, yes, this book is my way of saying, no, this is the truth. This is what it feels like when you look at someone who you think doesn't belong where you are, or say something to a stranger that is wildly inappropriate. This is what that does to people.
0: You had to learn how to, how to carry that and find a place for it in your life without letting it hold you back yes. throughout your childhood. How did that how did that Sort of evolve for you, as you said. You grew up in this place of love, but where this sort of thing was always out on the outside, ready to strike at any time. How did you, though, find a way to, to grow and follow your dreams and enjoy your life? Very, you very you you call yourself the luckiest girl in the world, I really right? So you, so you grew up and you went to you went to Catholic high school, I guess, right? Is I, that right? For a yeah. minute, for oh, one not minute, or no, okay. no, no, no,
2: no. <laughs> um, my. I in but addition you pursued, to right you in addition to all path. of my other you know otherness I also <laughs> skipped three years of grade school and so I was eleven when I went to high school and fifteen when I went to college at a very
0: young age you found out right that yeah. you, um that your intelligence level was another thing too that yes, was one I'm of the many a things super freak <laughs> on
2: every level um, and so I had. Um, the education story is a much, like, that's a book all on its own. Did you thrive in school
0: in terms of friendships? Or how, how did that all work in terms of um, just just navigating childhood and then young adulthood? And
2: When I was in, I went to a remarkable grammar school in Chicago called Walt Disney Magnet School. It was the first magnet school in Chicago designed for gifted kids, wildly, richly diverse. Um, and I'm still friends with a lot of those people to this day. And Facebook certainly helps keep us keep us close. Um, high school, it took me a minute to find my footing. Um, I had gone to a very prestigious um, a very prestigious boarding school just outside of Chicago at their request. I was the only kid of color. I was the only one of maybe three or four Jewish kids, and I was freakishly young. And, oh, right. So, you know, and, yeah. and so maturity-wise. That wasn't as much no. the problem. The school promised my parents they weren't going to turn me into a spectacle. Um. But they wanted me because I was a spectacle. And when all the donors would come, they would trot me out as their you know, urban Jewish genius. Um, and it was a disaster. And so my parents pulled me out at the semester. But because I never technically graduated from Chicago Public Schools... I had to have a full year of high school under my belt. And the Jewish schools, the Jewish day schools, um, let it be known that they would prefer that I not go there. I didn't want to go to some of the other private schools in Chicago because it was, it felt too much like what I was leaving in boarding school in terms of environment. And so we went to our rabbi and we were like, Rabbi Shalman, what do we do? And he and Cardinal Bernadine, the late Cardinal Bernadine out of Chicago, they were the best of friends. And he said, "Go send her to the Academy of the Sacred Heart. She'll learn something she didn't know. It's a great school, and then you can put her in public school after that." So I went to the Academy of the Sacred Heart on Sheridan Road. Um, and again, very you know, very different environment. I think there were thirty girls in my class. I was the only Jewish kid that I can think of. Um, I was there on scholarship, which people knew, um, and and. I wanted to go to school, like public school. I wanted there to be boys. I didn't want to wear a uniform. So I transferred eventually as a junior to Von Steuben High School, um, which is where my mother had gone to school. And Von Steuben was wonderful. It was wonderful. Um, I did have friends, (laughs) which was good. So you sort of were able to blossom finally Yes, I I found my footing there. And then I went to the University of Illinois in Champaign, which I, I had too much fun there. I had a great time. I didn't ever lead with my age because I wanted people to get to know me first. But once people found out, they didn't, they didn't really hold it against me, which is good.
0: When you finally sort of started to emerge away from this environment where people were constantly sort of looking you up and down and, and restricting you from being able to be fully yourself, what was that like?
2: It wasn't that different though. I, I went through sorority rush twice. Um, and recently, actually, somebody confirmed for me that one of the reasons why the Jewish sorority that I wanted to pledge wouldn't take me is because I was biracial. Um, the black sororities did not want me because I was Jewish. So I could not be in a house, which is what I wanted very much.
0: So it even followed you to it, of course, this much bigger Of stage. course it did.
2: It was, it was funny. The other, um, I mean, I, I found my people. I, I did musical theater, with, and those were my people, which was great. Um, but it it isn't to say that I've ever escaped it. It's, it is, it's It's who I am. So it's really not about me escaping it. It's just about me coming to understand that it is not a burden. It's my gift.
0: When it would raise its sort of ugly head again like that, how did you start to, to feel and view it where you're like, okay, here we go again. This is what I do. Well, it's exhausting. I, yeah, I mean.
2: Uh, it's exhausting.
0: Uh, like, did it? I, I hate to say, did it ever get easier, but uh, I, I mean... It's easier now.
2: Yeah. It's easier now. But again, it's, not, it's because I'm different now. The things that I used to view as burdens, I really understand now are my gifts. But that's what 25 years of therapy does for you. Like, I've really done a lot of work to reframe how I see myself. I don't let anyone tell me who I am anymore. That comes
0: across so strongly in the memoir, too, this, this feeling that you see all of this now as, as almost a special gift that you've been yes, given I do. defining your role. It,
2: I think that each of us has our things, right, that we can view as the things that make our life harder or the things that give us something unique that we get to carry out into the world. And it takes a lot of work to be able to find that that balance and to claim your life as a gift. Um, but I really do view myself as being tremendously blessed. I cannot think of anyone who has been loved in the way that I have, really. And that, And yes, I also know what hate looks like, which is why I know what I want to put out in the world, because I know exactly what the differences are.
0: You mentioned when you found musical theater that that began to sort of open things up for you.
2: Yes. I still, I love musicals. Um, I started performing when I was very young. I think the first show that I did, I was Tinkerbell and Peter Pan when I was like five. Um, And I loved performing. Oh my God, I loved. And I did wonderful shows. I was in Hair. I played King Herod in Jesus Christ Superstar. Um, I was in Little Shop of Horrors. Like I did amazing shows. But even there... I was performing professionally in Chicago in the very early 90s, but mixed-race casting wasn't a thing in the early 90s. And I've seen casting sheets where the director would say, but what is she? And and so even in the world of musical theater, there were still limitations put on me because people couldn't easily quantify who I am. Did that eventually prevent you from going further in it? Absolutely. There was definitely a... Like, the ceiling was quite low. Um, back then, I was not going to get put in the chorus of Oklahoma on Broadway, like I would now. Um, and so there was very little space for me to to do much. I did a couple of original productions. Um, I worked with a wonderful, very important theater company called HealthWorks Theater. We did short musicals about HIV and AIDS as the AIDS epidemic was really bursting forth in society, we used music and humor and theater to educate high school kids and older about HIV. Um, so I did some wonderful things that I treasure to this day. Um, but yes, it, I was limited.
0: At each point along the way, you can see where you, you've learned to pivot then and yeah. go around and still pursue your, yeah. your goals and your dreams. Your path eventually took you to Los Angeles, and that's where a lot of this story,
2: the, the large part of this story kind of begins. You find yourself in... I, I, well, I found my voice. You know, L.A. has been remarkably freeing for me. I have this wonderful life, and, and I finally, there was something in this life that I've built in L.A. that, that left me free, which I'm grateful for.
0: Something that's so clear t- throughout your memoir is just y- your deep love for your faith and your heritage yes. and Judaism. Yeah. Uh, that has always been a constant for you. You've never questioned no, that I part would, of your identity ever.
2: I would choose, if, if I were to choose a religion, I would choose to be Jewish. I think being Jewish is really beautiful and, and what Judaism teaches us is beautiful.
0: What do you love about it that, that resonates with you and has throughout your life? Um,
2: well, there's a lot. I mean, Judaism is rooted in love. It is rooted in love of family. It is rooted in love of community. The notion of tikkun olam, that we are here to to help make the world a more beautiful place, to repair a broken world. I think all of those things are so beautiful. Um, and and that we celebrate and mourn as a community. It, Judaism is about community. Kehillah Kedosha, like beloved, blessed community. Like it's there's beauty in that,
0: and you have pursued studies, and I mean, you have really immersed yourself. Yeah.
2: In your faith, you speak Hebrew. I do. Uh, you pursued a degree. I well, I thought about going to rabbinic school. Um, I oh my god, I would be the worst <laughs> rabbi ever. But I did think about going to rabbinic school. Um, I do have a master's in Jewish history. I, I did the Jewish communal service program. Um, I, I learned fairly quickly that working in the community was probably not a good fit for me. Um and so it is kind of a funny thing that now I am literally like center stage <laughs> in front of the community in this way. It's it's a it's a strange full circle moment for me.
0: The book has been embraced by so many yes. uh in the Jewish community. What's that been like after a lifetime of of, of having to say <laughs> yes, I am Jewish to what's that like?
2: I am still sort of pinching myself and amazed and humbled and grateful um, that I am being, that my my book is being embraced in the way that it is. Um, It was funny, you know, normally if I'm, (laughs) I'm so embarrassed to even say this, normally if I'm in a room full of Jews and it's my first time there, I'm always, I'm I'm slightly on high alert wondering what's happening. So last night when um, the chairs of the book festival so graciously asked me to stand up, you know, they, they introduced a the couple of of authors that were in the audience, I heard a woman near me say, oh, I thought I recognized her. And it was the first time in my whole life that it was because somebody recognized me because of my book and not because they wanted to know who the brown girl was. And I had this moment of, oh. And she came up to me afterwards and she said, I knew that was you. I read your book and I saw your picture and I'm coming to your presentation and I'm so happy to meet you. And I just thought, wow, like that's that's amazing. You know, that's amazing for me. And to think
0: that this story you held so close and dealt yeah. with so close is now
2: what's yeah healing. It, it really has been this vehicle for me to to speak the truth about what it has been like for me in a way that is not combative and, and, and not, I'm not calling anybody out. I'm not pointing fingers or naming names. And, it, and we're having a conversation like I get to have a conversation with the people that come to these events where they ask me questions, I ask them questions, and we come to an understanding that really we are all the same. We are one community. And that's how we're supposed to be. And, yes, you can be born Jewish and look like me. You cannot be born Jewish and decide to be Jewish That, that you know and look like me, <laughs> um, that, that we come from all different corners of the world and always have. We are not just an Ashkenazi population. And if I get to be a part of that conversation, I'm grateful. You're addressing some really hard truths, and yet people seem open to them. I want people to know that I'm happy as long as they're asked in an atmosphere of respect. I will answer your questions. Um, Not every Jew of color feels that way, and I respect that. I really do. But for me, I think that if I can build greater understanding by answering a few questions, I'm okay to do that.
0: You mentioned to this is personal for you beyond your
2: own experience. You have a niece
0: who is. Yes,
2: I do. I'm my, my niece is also biracial. Um, and I pray that the world is different for her than it was for me. And I see that at least on its face, it looks different, right? Our community is so much more diverse. And, and there, she is not the only one. I was the only one. She's not the only one. But I want her to know that she has a voice right now. And I never want her to be silent or feel like she needs to be silent. I want her to know that there are people that came before her, that she's not the only one.
0: In your foreword, you have a beautiful line about coming to embrace the fact that you inhabit the beautiful space in between. Yes. Uh, That just hit me. (laughs) Thank you. It was beautiful because I could... uh, sense from that, that that's not something, that's something you came to understand and appreciate yes. and love. And
2: it's so clear how happy you are with your life. It took me a long time to be here, fully inhabiting my life, claiming my joy, claiming my beauty, claiming my voice, claiming my space wherever I want to be. Um, and I'm, I'm happy. I really am. I say it in the book and I mean it. I am the luckiest girl and and i i count my blessings every day mara gad thank you so much for joining us thank you thank you
1: mara gad on how her long struggle to be happy with herself is finally paying off now to close out our podcast we'll hear mara gad read a passage from her book the color of love
2: in my life i have found that there are truths many people do not want to hear I have been told that the stories of my life could not or did not happen. No one wants to think racism and intolerance exist among people who know so well, too well, what it feels like to be discriminated against. Jews and black people certainly know and should know better. For many, identity is literally a black and white matter. For those of us who live in the gorgeous spaces in between, we must choose how to manage what comes when we are othered by others. This is the story of how I have come to know who I am when faced with exactly this. And I know the choice is mine and mine alone. It is because of everything I have ever experienced and the fact that I exist in this unique form that I am able to choose as I do and not despite it. And for me, the choice is always love.
1: That's independent film and television producer and writer Mara Gad reading from her book The Color of Love a story of a mixed-race Jewish girl, by Gate Publishing during our interview with her in November of 2019. Thank you for joining us on this episode of Talking with Authors. Remember, you can watch most of the episodes of this program by going online to hecmedia.org. Also, be sure to follow us on social media. Just search for Talking with Authors on all social media platforms. And if you haven't done so yet, please rate and review this program wherever you get your podcasts. The host and producer of the video version of this program was Brenda Madden. Photography was by Peter Foggy and Ken Kalkatera. Audio by Ben Smith. Editing and graphics by Carrie Marks. Supervising producer was Julie Winkle. Production support by Jane Ballou and Christina Chastain. And HEC Media Executive Director is Dennis Riggs. The Talking with Authors Podcast Executive Producer is Christina Chastain. And I'm Rod Milam, your podcast producer and host. Special thanks to the St. Louis Jewish Book Festival. Again, thank you for joining us. We'll see you next time.
2: This is HEC Media. You wake up.
0: You get dressed. You prepare for a day of challenging and inspiring young minds. But maybe all you get is frustration and anxiety. You are a teacher. In the Classroom Matters podcast, we discuss the good, the bad, and the ugly of education. We talk to people such as Kim Bearden, co-founder of the Ron Clark Academy, Ken Williams, creator of Unfold the Soul, Teacher of the Year Beth Davey, and so many more insightful educators. Because your voice matters. Your experience matters. Your classroom matters. Classroom Matters with Christy Hool, a new podcast from Educate.today. Subscribe and download now.